Well, again, uh, thank you all for being here. I don't know how many of you have read uh, anything from uh, the philosopher, 17th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. He was a very devout Christian. And in his later life, he wrote a piece called Pensies. Some of you have perhaps read it. You can, I think it's available online, probably in a PDF uh, uh, public domain, so if you don't want to buy it. But it's, it's really a compilation, Pensies being his thoughts, his reflections on life. Uh, he became later on in his life an ascetic. He, he felt that he needed to uh, cut out all earthly pleasures and, and to seek an understanding of God. And he wrote Pensies as an apologetic for Christianity, saying, you know, if you're honest about what the world is around you, if whether you're a Christian or secular, whatever, if you really look deeply into the soul of man, something's wrong, something's missing. Listen to what he said. I, I've read it years ago. I found the quote the other day, and I thought you would enjoy this and it would make some sense. But listen carefully to what uh, Blaise Pascal said back in the 17th century. There was once in man a true happiness. There was once in man a true happiness of which now only remains a trace, a mark, empty, which he in vain, listen to this, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. Read circumstances, all our outward surroundings, okay? Which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, but these are inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and unchangeable object, only by God Himself. What Pascal is saying is in the heart of every human being, doesn't matter uh, whether it's somebody living out in the middle of a jungle or out in the middle of the bush and uh, doesn't know anything about anything, there's something inside human beings that always is unsettled. There's a gnawing hollowness in everybody. And when explorers discovered these primitive tribes, they found that same thing because they were painting their faces, they were making sacrifices, they were worshiping. They never heard a thing about Christianity, but they were trying to fill that hollowness inside with something transcendent, something above themselves because that hollowness, that emptiness is infinite. It has no bottom. Some of you have a lot of money. Some of you have very little money. Some of you are in between. Most of us in here are in between somewhere. But you know money cannot satisfy. You know that fame and glory and those things, are, we can get them. You can get the new car. You can get the new wife or the new husband. You can get the new whatever. And it just leaves us still feeling hollow, still feeling empty. Pascal is saying only God can fill that emptiness. Uh, so if you have your scriptures, open them to Isaiah 61. And what I'm going to do is, this is just a freestanding sermon. It's not part of a series. But it is, I think, a good place for us to start 2018. As you, as you reflect back on your past, the past year, 
everyone, I don't know if you make resolutions, you know, resolutions, I don't know if they're good or bad, but everybody is thinking about, let's get a fresh start. Let me get going here. Let me get at something new. I hope something new happens this year. We mark time. We're made to mark time. And so uh, we think in terms of maybe getting a fresh start. What is the vision? And I want to cast a vision for you, for Christ the King, for 2018 and beyond. But something that I think will, will, could, if you will let it, capture your heart and be something that's underneath the surface that will bear you up, hold you up as we go through this coming year. So turn to Isaiah 61. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed in your bulletin. We're going to read uh, verses uh, 61, 1 through 3. I think I'm going to end at 3. And then... Uh, I'll pick up at 10 and read through part of 65, uh, 62 up to verse 5. Very, it's actually very, very short. But now hear God's word and listen carefully to what the prophet is saying. And these words will probably sound familiar to some of you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Now look down at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice. This is the answer of the prophet to this declaration uh, by the prophet of the Spirit of God giving this message. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, now God is speaking. This is God now. He's back. This is going back and forth. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land no more termed desolate but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Okay, what's going on here? Well, the nation of Israel had sinned grievous sins. In fact, we've talked about this before. The history of the ancient Near East is a horrific story of civilizations, very highly civilized, very educated compared to the rest of the world, and incredibly violent, incredibly brutal. Life meant nothing to these ancient Near East religions. We, we can't even fathom. In fact, I couldn't, in this mixed company with children and, and polite people of, of society, we couldn't even say some of the things that they did on a regular basis. And these were not ignorant people. They were brilliant. The highly most educated people in the world. They were brutal and evil. Beyond, you know, the Vikings? The Vikings were Disney workers compared to these people. These people were bad. And into that world, God sends His people, His church. He puts them there. And instead of going the other way, they became more and more and more to the point. The prophet Jeremiah said, to, he, on behalf of God, he said, you are doing things. He told the people, you're doing things that are so horrific, they never even came into my mind. Now, doesn't God know everything? Right? He knows everything. But he's using an anthropomorphic expression, he's using a human expression to say, you're doing things that are so horrific, I didn't even imagine them. That's how bad they were. And God warned them and warned them by the prophets over and over, stop, stop what you're doing. They didn't listen. So off they go, they lost their nation, they lost everything. Now, it's hard for us in Western America, you know, nobody's going to come to an American and take away their house, unless you're behind on your mortgage, but nobody's going to take away your house. But what if you're all up to date on your house payment, all up to date on your car payments, everything's good, you've got money in the bank, and they still come and take away everything, and throw you out. And not only throw you out, but they carry you away in caravans to a whole other nation where you don't know when you become, maybe you were a doctor, maybe you were a lawyer, maybe you were a merchant, now you're a slave, you're, 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 you're mopping floors. Nobody cares who you were in that other life. You lose everything. And over in that land where they had lost everything, the prophet says, there will be a day. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I will reverse this. You have lost everything and it's because of your sin and your evil. You deserve it. But I will reverse. I will turn it around. I will restore. Now some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost uh, people in your life, children, or uh, a mother, a father, a sister, but some of you have lost your marriages. Some of you have lost uh, uh, money. Some of you have lost uh, status. Maybe you had a reputation, you lost a reputation. I don't know. I don't know everybody's story. And some of those losses, if you're honest, they are irretrievable. You will never get back what you lost, particularly when it comes to death, right? Die? You don't get them back. They're gone. It's over. You will never get that back. Now as Christians, we're, you know, your mind is rolling. So, oh, no, no, we're going to go to heaven. And we're going to go. But stop for a minute. That's not what the world 
is telling us. When you die, you go in the dirt, that's the end. There's nothing left. And God is speaking by His people and by His prophets and by His Word into that unbelievable condition of loss and never getting it back, emptiness never being full, poverty never having anything again, uh, brokenness never being healed. He's speaking into that and He's saying, No! And interestingly enough, this was Jesus' first text. His, what we believe, scholars believe, was His first sermon. He chose Isaiah 61. And He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on Me. Me, Jesus. I've come. And then He finished reading this amazing text that everybody's familiar with. And He sits down and He tells the crowd, Today, these words are fulfilled in your ears. Me. What, what amazing power of this man. I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to be. That thing which Blaise Pascal said is in you but can't be filled. I'm going to fill it up. And you'll be different because of it. Now I know we don't sometimes feel different, but uh, he's saying we can and we will. So let's look at this from three perspectives. I think that, I think that there's more, but I'm stuck on this number three. I don't know. Maybe 2018 I should go to, what, two, maybe four, uh, break the habit. I don't know, but three's pretty good. Help you kind of keep things in mind. So let's look at this. First of all, the restoration of joy. Secondly, the cause of joy. I think he lays it out very clearly. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the source of true joy. So, the restoration of joy, the cause of joy, and the source of true joy. Now, the restoration of joy. Look at verse 10, the very, right off the bat. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in my God. The, the word rejoice and exult in Hebrew is the same, the same word. They're just different forms of the same word. So he's saying, I will joy, I will joy. He's, he's being emphatic. He's putting an exclamation point and saying, I will joy, I will joy, and here's what I will joy in. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in my God. You see, joy in the Bible, joy and biblical happiness. Now, I'm not talking about just regular happiness, being happy because you got a discount at you know, the store or something's on sale or whatever. You know, that's happy. You get happy. Oh, my gosh. You, or, you, you know, like the other day, uh, my phone rang and I picked up my phone and it was weird and I kind of, what's going on with my phone? And all of a sudden, my grandson, my little, not even a year old, his face is on my phone. I went, wow, hello, hello, uh, can you see me? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what to do. He's FaceTiming me. Now, I don't know what is going on with my kids giving my grandson an iPhone, but uh, he had the iPhone and he said, you know, like that. I was so happy. I was so happy to see his little face, right? That's happiness. 
I had a good circumstance and it made me happy. Okay, good. Joy is also happiness, but joy and happiness and blessedness, basically the same idea all across, is something that is not less than happiness, but it, it's, it's more than happiness. And, and joy and blessedness is something that runs underneath the surface that is powerful. It's a power. And listen, it's a power, a presence a strength, joy. It's a power, a presence, a strength in you, not uh, merely because of circumstances, but because of the Lord Himself, His presence in your life. So you can understand how the Apostle Paul could be in prison, bound up in chains, hadn't eaten anything. And believe me, those prisons were not like our prisons. They, were not, they didn't have color TV. All right? They were real horrible dungeons filled with filth. And Paul is down there with Silas and they're singing and they're rejoicing. Their bodies are beaten to a pulp. There's no chance they're going to get out. There's not a possibility in the world they're going to get out except Paul played the the citizenship card and he did get them out. But there's not a chance they're going to get out. But they're rejoicing. There's that power, that strength that's underneath. And, and, and Isaiah is urging. He's telling the exilic community. He's telling people who have lost everything and have nothing and have been completely raped of who they are. You have me. Rejoice in me. Now, that's a tough message for Americans. I get it. I understand. I mean, we have everything. We live in a land that's flowing with milk and honey. People in the, the poorest people in our country have cell phones. And we live in a land of flowing with milk and honey. So it's really hard. I'm asking you, put yourself, if you've lost anything. I know some of you have lost lots. You've lost loved ones. You've lost jobs. You've lost maybe a marriage, maybe a child. I don't know. Whatever it is, you know what that feels like. Maybe you're healthy. Maybe you got a bad diagnosis this week. I don't know. It's not that you ignore or deny the circumstances. Listen carefully. You don't deny them and you don't ignore them. But hear this. You don't let them define who you are. Maybe they'll define what you do. You know, if you don't have any groceries, go get a job, right? J-O-B. So change your circumstances, but for goodness sakes, don't let that define you. Don't let that be who you are because it will crush you. It'll make you a slave. It'll make you an exile. You'll only think of yourself in terms of slavery and poverty and depression and lack and nothing. That will, that will be how you see yourself. Nehemiah, the prophet, the, the uh, governor of Israel during the rebuild of, of after this happened, and the people had come back, and they were grieving over their sins because Ezra had gotten up and read the book of the law to them and told them, see, I told you so. This is you're getting what you deserve. And the people were standing out there with their children, all this huge multitude of people. Ezra read, and they were weeping, and they're beating their chests, and they're saying, oh, my, how are we ever going to recover from this exile? How are we ever going to rebuild the nation? How is it ever going to happen? And Nehemiah said, don't grieve. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't look at the ruins of Jerusalem. It was in ruins. The temple wasn't even there. It was nothing but dirt. Where the magnificent temple Solomon had built was gone. There were no priests. There were no sacrifices. There was nothing. They couldn't even go to church. And Nehemiah has the temerity to stand up and say, Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, it's underneath your circumstances. It's what's holding you up. And if you don't go to that, if you don't focus on the Lord, you will always be looking for something else. Like Pascal said, you're always going to be looking for something because we are made to be happy. We are built for joy. We are built for happiness. We are built for success. We are built for the garden, not the wilderness. Yes? We were made for that. He made the garden and He put us in it and He says, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. This is very good. We are made for this life. We're made for this world. We're made for America. We're made for each other. We're made for Christ the King. We're made for our spouse. We're made for our children. We're to rejoice, even when th- especially when things get hard. And circumstances are not going. You have got to drill down and look. You can't do it if you're just always looking at the phone and always with the... You have to carve out. I'm going to just tell you plain. If you don't carve out some time of your day, I don't care what... The amount doesn't matter for goodness sakes. But carve out some time of your day where everything is off, nothing is on, and all you have is Him. Bible reading is not... Don't substitute Bible reading. That's all fine and dandy. But there must be time in your life. And I don't care. You you figure it out. I can't tell you how much. Could be five minutes. Five minutes is better than nothing. And I beg you, in 2018, you carve out some time of your day. I don't care how old you are, kids. You listen to me. You carve out some time of your day where it's quiet and solitude and all you're doing is thinking about God and maybe going through a liturgy like your your take your bulletin home from church and just go through it or 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 sing some songs or do something but just quietly you and the Lord and I will say to you that that will change you the joy of the Lord will start to move up in you you're not going to get it from studying theology you can't feel, theologize joy into your life. You have to feel it, right? You've got to feel it. Joy is a feeling. And there's nothing wrong with that. God redeemed our feelings. He wants us to enjoy Him. The first question of the catechism. We are to enjoy Him forever. Not someday now. And if you're not enjoying God, if, if your heart's just empty and, and sour and there's a sadness and depression in your life, maybe you need to see a doctor. I wouldn't say you shouldn't see a doctor, but, but at least do some of this too. At least carve out some time for just quiet. If it's just on your way to work, turn the radio, whatever you have to do. But without that time, without time with Him, the joy, because what He's saying is rejoice in the Lord. Study your Bible. Read your Bible, yes, but have some time of prayer. Meditate. Five minutes. Ten minutes. Whatever. 
What is the cause for joy? Quickly, let me give these to you because I think Isaiah... Now, I don't know that Isaiah self-consciously laid these out the way I am, but that's my job. That's what a, a, a pastor or preacher is supposed to do. I'm supposed to read you the passage and tell you what I think it means. Okay? So here you go. Listen. Three things become the cause for your joy. It's not, a, it's not that you're just supposed to, oh, i got to be joyful. Chuck said be joyful. No, no, no. There's a reason to be joyful. There's a cause for that joy. Look at it. He says what it is. Look at verse 61 again, middle part. He says, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. Our status changes. The status we had before was what? Nakedness. Everywhere in the Bible, nakedness, from, from Genesis chapter 2 on, nakedness, is, nakedness was first good, then bad. And the reason it was identified with sin was because they had sinned. Before sin entered their lives, Adam and Eve, they were naked and what? Unashamed. They sin, and now they're naked and ashamed. So nakedness was not about being naked. Are you listening? Nakedness was not about being unclothed. And what do we do as Christians? Oh, we've got to get the hemlines longer. We've got to get the necklines up. We've got to make the sleeves longer. In fact, it would be even better if we cover their head. It would even be better if we cover their eyes and just put a little net so you can't even see their eyes. Right? Isn't that where we go? That's our remedy for fixing things? Let's cover the physical body. Now, I'm not advocating for immodesty. Please don't misunderstand. But that's not going to fix it. No. Nakedness is a metaphor for sin. Of course they were ashamed. They were uncovered. Their status had changed. And He's saying to them, you are now naked before Me. And what did they try to do? Cover with fig leaves? I mean, really? I, have you thought about that? First of all, they're not going to last. Secondly, they don't look that good. Thirdly, they're going to dry up and shrink, and then you're back. You know. I mean, you could go on and on. Fig leaves are just not going to work. And it's interesting in Hebrew... It says, they themselves tried to, they themselves, it says over and over, they did this, they did this, they hid, they did it. Because he's trying to get across the idea that they were trying to fix the nakedness, like we do. Trying to define how people should dress and define all these things. That's not what it's about. No. And God comes in the garden, listen to this, He comes in the garden, He says, where are you? Not shame on you. You hear that? Every one of us struggles with that. We hear God saying, shame on you. Instead of Him saying to us, where are you? When you sin, we hear Him say shame. But really what He's saying is, where are you? 
come to me, all you that labor. Get over here. I know where you are. Come here. I'll deal with your nakedness. I'll wrap you in mink. He wrapped them in he wrapped them in skins of animals. He covered them perfectly at another's expense. At an innocent animal's expense. At his expense. God covered their nakedness. Wow. If that's not a cause for joy, I don't know what is, folks. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't possibly give you anything better than that. Unless, unless you read the next verse. It gets better. He changes our status. He also changes our identity. Look what he says. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, talking about the groom, the male, as a priest with their beautiful headdress, because they wore these amazing uh, headdress, uh, as a bride, now we're talking about the bride with the jewels and all of that, you will be called down in 62, look down there in verse 2, you'll be called by a new name, the Lord will give you that name. What happens when you get married? You get a new name. You will be a crown of beauty, a royal diadem. They're going to put this put this crown on your head, you're going to be that to God. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. My favorite movie of all times, top number one, is Fiddler on the Roof. I love Fiddler on the Roof. And if you remember the wedding scene in Fiddler on the Roof when when the daughter, I don't know, Huddle or Muddle or Juddle or whatever, I don't know, I can't remember the girls. They're, they're, I get all their names mixed up. But the oldest daughter, who was really not the prettiest of the daughters, she's the oldest, but she gets married, and she marries Muddle, right? It's his name, Muddle. Muddle comes oil is his name. Why I remember his name, I don't know. Maybe because my life I've muddled through. And at the wedding scene, all the folks are gathered in the square of the, of the little town, Anatevka. And they're all there, everybody. And the mother takes her daughter, who's really not the prettiest, but she sparkled with her beautiful wedding dress and her, her veil. And she was looking so beautiful. And they were poor people, but they dressed their daughter up. And if you remember from the movie, the mother takes her and what does she do? She takes her around the circle. Everybody's around in a big circle, the whole town. And she takes her and she's holding her and she carries her like this. And the mother's looking in every face and looking at her daughter. The beauty, the glory. Do you see yourself like that? God has meant to take you and clothe you, not just with robes of righteousness, not just, not just clothing. No, no, wedding garments. And then He's going to take you and parade you before the whole world and the angels in heaven and the demons in hell and everybody in between. He's going to parade you around and say, look at my beauty. Look at my beauty. And all we see is shame on you, shame on you. And the prophet is saying, no, no, no. Clothing represents status. It also represents identity. It represents you're not just clothed. You are clothed to be married, to be a glory, to be a beauty to God. From the littlest of you, the youngest of you, to the oldest of us. 
And finally, he gives us that purpose already mentioned as the earth brings forth. Look at 61.11. The earth brings forth its sprout. The garden causes what is sown in its sprout. So the Lord will cause righteousness. He's saying, this is going to, have, it's going to sprout up. Like as sure as the spring comes and everything buds and sprouts and grows, this will happen. I will see to it. For Zion's sake, he says, I will not. For Zion is you. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. God is saying, whatever else happens, I will shout this from the rooftops. I'll not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation like a burning torch. The nations will see you and kings will see your righteous glory. Imagine this. What a vision. What a cause for joy. Look, I I know some of you are having hard times. And who knows what this year holds for us. I don't know. Whatever it is, if you drill down into this, these causes for joy, that you have been clothed with righteousness, that you have a new name, that you have the wedding garments that God intends to make you beautiful, that what He began in you, He will not cease until it's done, that every single thing, good, bad, and in between, is going to work for your glory to make you that bride so that He can take you by the hand and and carry you through this world and show you off. Even with your brokenness. Especially, I would say, in your brokenness. Saying, you see how messed up Chuck was, but look at him now. Still messed up a little bit, but he's better. Right? I mean, imagine that. Think in those terms. He's going to take you and perfect you. And one day, He's going to perfect you completely. He's at work in you. When you mess up, He doesn't hold His nose. He comes in closer. He gets His stuff. He gets His Holy Spirit going and they go to work on you. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that the Lord is at work in you. Can you rejoice in that? I sure hope so. And the source. What is the source of this true joy? He, he said, I don't even know if Isaiah, I'm almost sure Isaiah and these prophets that wrote this material, they didn't really know exactly how this was all going to come about. But he says in 62 verse 4, how, what is the source for this joy? Okay, I'm going to see the cause. I see what is going on here. But where is its fountainhead? Where is its source? Where is the source? The most unexpected place you can ever imagine. Look at verse 4. 62 verse 4. I can hardly read it. He tells these people who had done things irreversible, irredeemable, some of the most horrific things you can imagine. Nobody in this room has done anything that compared with this. And he says to them, you shall no more be termed forsaken. And in Hebrew, he uses a proper word. He says, you no more shall be called Charles which meant something, okay? You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land, no more termed desolate. He uses another proper name, desolate. But you will be called 
My delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Now, folks, if you've been coming to Christ the King for any length of time whatsoever, I don't even need to finish this sermon. You should know what's coming. You shall no more be termed forsaken. You shall no more be termed desolate. You will be my delight. How in the world can he say that and mean it? Just ollie ollie oxen free? No. On the cross. The cross, the cross, the cross. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? My soul is poured out like wax. And my house is left to me desolate. Jesus on the cross. That's how he can say it. And that, look, as Protestants, we want to run quickly. We want to run past the cross and go to the resurrection. And look, I'm all for that. But let's learn something from our brothers and sisters in other traditions where The cross is something that represents the brutality, the lostness, the emptiness, the poverty, the desolation, the nakedness of our sins. What are you going to do about your sins? That's the question. What will you do? Because if you hang on to them, if they're not atoned for, if somehow, some way, they are not obliterated, you cannot have a moment's joy, you can't have a moment's peace, and all that is ahead of you is a grave, a pit, and utter and complete darkness. And if you believe in, in eternity, fire from hell. Now I know Presbyterians are not supposed to be fire and brimstone, but please wake up. Fire and brimstone, that's what's ahead. Unless you have some way of dealing with your sin, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know what you're going to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to run to Jesus on the cross and I'm going to say, you were forsaken for me. You, the, the, the Father, the Father poured out His wrath on the Son. How can we even get our head around that? And the Son took the cup of wrath and He drank it to the dregs. For you, as you, on that cross. And that becomes our delight. He becomes our delight. And the resurrection, oh yes, of course. Death couldn't hold Him. He took our sins, not His own. He died for you, not for Himself. That's a cause for joy. Can you rejoice in that? If you can't, you don't have Christ. You don't have Christianity. And believe me, The churches are full of people that are not Christians. And I want to appeal to you. Examine your heart. Are you trusting Him? Will you trust Him? And I hope you do. I hope you parents build this into the life of your children. That their joy is in that man on that cross for them. Forsaken. You'll never be called forsaken. You want to know why? Because He was. 
And God will never go back on His Word. When He sees His Son forsaken, He sees you as His bride. Can you take that in? Can you believe that? Well, but I, you know, I did a lot of bad things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now you're getting close to the truth. Run to Jesus. Run! He'll never turn us away. Never. That's what He loves. He loves you. He delights in you. You're His bride. He's going to take you by the hand and show you off to this world. And don't you ever doubt it for a minute. Let's pray. Father, I know it's hard for us to take in because we think we have to earn this. We think we have to be good enough. And the minute we think we have to be good enough, we forget the one who was truly good. And I don't ever want to forget him. Please, I pray, this year, make it a year of transformation for this congregation and for anyone that steps in that door that the power of the Holy Spirit would just crash down upon them and renew them in their lives by faith. We cannot fix our sin, no matter how good we are. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough currency. We don't have enough of anything. We must rely on you for forgiveness, and I pray that we'll do it. And as we come to this table, I pray that our joy will swell up in us knowing that Jesus died for us, loves us, and makes us his bride, clothing us with the beautiful robes of righteousness, showing us off to the world. I pray you'll do it, Father. Please. We ask this in your name. Amen.